The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Paul Boyer, Michael Bolick, and Will Harris. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for this August 5th, 2020. My name is Justin Robert Young. We get a lot to get to here today. Uh, A bit later, we're going to go a little bit outside of our comfort zone, but not very far, to deal with the world of college athletics. There's some very interesting things happening. Uh, Organization of uh, uh, groups that historically have kind of avoided that. A lot of big money on the line and one of the most American pastimes of all time hangs in the balance. One that has been a political plaything for the president of the United States. That is college football, of course. We have a great interview and some new late-breaking news on that subject. We are also going to get into the YouTube channels of both Donald Trump and Joe Biden. I became obsessed with both of them over the last 48 hours. I will share with you what I found. There are a few notes uh, that are kind of late breaking here that I do want to go over real quick, though. First and foremost, Axios is reporting that the Veep Stakes is now down to Susan Rice and Kamala Harris. They reveal that uh, the real split here is a portion of Clinton-Obama people that are pushing for Harris and what I would suspect is more Obama loyalists that didn't wind up going to the Hillary camp that are pushing for Susan Rice. Politico, meanwhile, reports today that the Republicans and the Trump supporters would greatly prefer Rice. They believe that Rice gives them not only a direct line of attack back to Obama, which is for all the talk about Hillary being a historically unpopular candidate, and few said that more often than I did during the 2016 race, there is an element of Trump's success that comes from Hatred of the Obama administration. That eight years energized a certain segment of the country, and this would nail that down even further. Uh, uh, Trump people, including Tucker Carlson, who apparently went on like a 30-minute monologue about Benghazi, are really excited to slip into that old suit again. But that's where we are. There wasn't, and if the last thing you heard from me on Friday was that there was going to be an announcement on Saturday, well then, you're right, you're right. I was wrong, there wasn't going to be an announcement. Although, apparently there was going to be one, and, and the report was that Biden moved it back. If I were to guess, I would guess, because part of the reason why they moved it back was because Biden wanted to do one-on-one meetings If I were guessing, I would say that some of those one-on-one meetings were shooting videos. I would guess. I would guess. Although, I don't think that we go another weekend without getting an announcement. So come on, Kamala. Climb the ladder, kid. Make yourself famous. 
another note. Cocaine Mitch has caved on the $600 a week unemployment benefit. This is part of a larger strategic shift. As it turns out, the Senate Republicans could not get on the same page. And so now Mitch is going to cross the aisle and work with the Democrats to get a deal. They have pegged Friday as when they would like something they could get to the White House with. And this broke literally as I am recording. The Democratic National Convention will now have no speaking talent in Milwaukee at all. Not Joe Biden, not Obama, not whoever the VP's gonna be. <laughs> the sun is shining <laughs> and the rain. <laughs> nope, this thing's gonna be strictly made for TV. Both conventions now are going to be on the Republican side. Rumors circulating that Trump is going to accept the Republican nomination from the White House, which will probably bring about its own sturm and drong on whether or not that's allowed. I would suspect the Trumpian instinct I would guess on would be more some trapping of D.C., the National Mall, the Washington Monument, Something like that. There, there'd be there'd be some kind of of big DC grandiosity. If he can pick whatever backdrop he wants, there's going to be something big and stone behind him while he he does his uh, acceptance speech. So that's the latest news. We will get to our interview about college athletics in a minute. But first, he took the train four hours every day so he could have breakfast with his boys in the morning and tuck them in at night. People in Washington didn't get why Joe Biden would travel all that way. But in neighborhoods all over this country, there's no distance parents won't go for their kids. Never underestimate the power of family. I'll confess, guys, I fell down a rabbit hole you know, there's sometimes where I got really, really big ideas on exactly what I want to talk to you on this, the Wednesday show. I got all week to figure it out. And I, I, I just got obsessed with the YouTube channels of our candidates. And, and here's the reason why. The Trump campaign pulled all their ads about a week ago. Because they, I would assume, in the wake of the leadership change, were redeciding exactly what they wanted their ad strategy to be. So I decided to go where I could find all of the Trump ads. And I found a lot of them. And I've got some thoughts. But then I was like, well, let me go ahead and look at Joe Biden's YouTube channel. And 48 hours later, here we are. Me with a big, full analysis of YouTube. Now, I do want to preface this entire segment by saying that I don't necessarily think that YouTube is the end-all, be-all. And, and I want to draw a very specific circle on what I am studying. And it's kind of in two parts. The first part is, let's understand that YouTube 
is important and will only get more important as we become a more and more online culture. And so as I am analyzing the strategies of both of these accounts, one of these strategies will likely win out going forward. Whether or not it's the right thing for this campaign, there is no doubt that a more YouTube-specific overall comm strategy is likely compared to, let's say, radio and television. Or at least a lot of these things will probably kind of merge more and more as we go forward. And the second is this. YouTube is the repository for all the media that a candidate puts out. And if that's the case, then we can get a fairly comprehensive look of what their overall communication strategy is by examining what they have put there. And so we start with Joe Biden. My analysis will exclusively be analyzing the last month's worth of video uploads as we are now within the 100-day mark of the election. And if you're not putting your A-game out now, what are you waiting for? Joe Biden has 102,000 subscribers. He started the YouTube account in 2019. So as far as a YouTuber goes, he's doing pretty good. You know, look, I, I know a lot of uh, <laughs> I know a lot of men in their 30s that would be thrilled that within a year they got 102,000 subscribers. So a lesson to all of you aspiring new media creators, all you got to do is run for president and have been in the Senate for 40 years. The majority of Biden's commercials are very slick and television traditional. Like we heard in the beginning of this segment, big piano chord, and then a message that resonates. You know, something like this. A proud military father who sent a son to Iraq. Or maybe a little something like this. In a crisis, you're tested. As a nation, we've been tested before, and he has too. The vast majority of these commercials are very Biden-focused. They do attack Trump, but usually only when it's in relief to a strength of Biden, which in general is, is fairly political X's and O's. In general, the vibe is very confident. It is a campaign that believes any right-thinking person, obviously thinks Trump is a total disaster and cannot wait until this national nightmare is over. And undoubtedly, for many, that is right on the money. Part of me, though, is not quite sold on the narrative of exactly what happens on day one when Biden becomes president beyond a change on the nameplate of the Resolute Desk. One commercial that we just played says he's tested and points to the Recovery Act as a reason why. But that's a piece of legislation. When people think about what happened in you know, after the 08 crisis, they don't necessarily think, oh, thank God the Recovery Act happened. They remember their houses and savings being lost. Could it have been worse? Sure. And of course, that was the argument that Obama made in 2012. But there's not a visceral feeling to it, at least this far later in the game. By far, though, the biggest video on his channel over the last month with over a million views is an interview with 
Obama. Obviously, Barry is Biden's power pitch, and they deploy it well enough here. But for me, it's a little stump speechy. The pair are never really more than a sentence away from something that sounds like a talking point, which obviously is what you'd get if they were on the road. If this were a normal year, they'd be on the road a lot, and they'd be having basically that conversation, talking point to talking point to talking point in the way of a stump speech. But that's not the internet. That's not the intimacy that a sit-down between two friends theoretically could sound like. Now... I don't want to play backseat driver here. Uh, no, I do. All right. It's my podcast. This is what I'm going to do. So screw it. I would have pushed a little bit more into the nostalgia with Biden and Obama. I would have, instead of it being a free flowing conversation, make it a little bit more structured by taking a look at headlines, pictures, and videos from their eight years in the White House. And in each one of these events, I would have made sure that we got a few, now I don't think we've ever told this to anyone, moments where Obama reveals the counsel and wisdom that Biden gave him. The best moment of that video does take things in that general direction. Here is Obama talking about the Affordable Care Act passing. Remember when we were talking about this, I always used to say the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, it's like a starter house. Yep. It, it, it's the first house you get. And it, it's not the end of the process, it's the beginning of the process. You know, we used to say that, you know, this is a starter house. Yeah. Remember what I used to say? It's like Social Security when it was first passed. That's exactly right. Social Security when it was first passed was this narrow. Very narrow. Social Security now. And you kept is on here building it up. Kept building it out. Making it better. Well, it's a little right. that that starter house. Man, in an alternate world where Joe Biden is running against like a real fiscal conservative, that would have been a whole month of the campaign. Literally exactly what he just said. That would be in attack ads. That would be its own thing. That is cut and dry exactly what a fiscal hawk would want to run against. That no plan is a compromise to the Obama-Biden machine. They will always get a foothold and then grow and grow and grow and grow and grow until there's nothing left. And they'll be saying it's better, it's better, but really it's just bigger and it's eating into your personal budget. But of course... Joe Biden is not running against a fiscal conservative. Donald Trump is certainly no Barry Goldwater, so that line will likely not matter at all. The tenor of Biden's entire campaign is that we are right now in the second act of a comeback story. You know, you have three acts. The first act, you introduce your characters and they go on an adventure. And the second act, they are at the bottom of their despair. Our characters are scattered to the wind. The enemy is in control and threatening to get the power they need to destroy the world. Now, there's no stirring we can do this guy's speech. This is more like Empire Strikes Back. Just a silent look from survivor to survivor, knowing 
that if they let go now, they'll never see each other again. They are all they have left. You're talking about Joe Biden? That guy is nuts! This is the core message of the Donald Trump YouTube with 577,000 subscribers, all of whom get ads that are of stark contrast to the stirring, piano-driven, slick advertisements that Biden is serving. These are far more blunt objects. This is one that came out today. Deep in the heart of Delaware, Joe Biden sits in his basement, alone, hiding, diminished, refusing to answer questions about the crazy far-left ideas he's adopted. A massive I just wanted to make sure I got to the cuckoo sound effect. Because boy howdy, do subscribers to this channel get a lot of content in the last 24 hours, at the point that I'm writing this, so th these numbers aren't going to be right by the time I even publish it. Trump YouTube pumped out 34 videos in the last 24 hours. This includes Trump appearances on television, not necessarily the whole interview. They, they clip out exactly what they want to see as shareable as possible. White House briefings, again, cut down into shareable bites, sometimes less than 10 seconds, by the way, and made for digital content from their team including this guys welcome back to the triggered podcast we have an incredible lineup today we have legendary nfl coach mike ditka oh, make no mistake about it the trump team is doing a much more efficient job of pumping out content than joe biden hell they're better at popping out bite-sized content of joe biden they have a, a, a daily rapid response to any time that Joe Biden goes on any interview or does any of his own broadcasts and either gets testy. Have you taken a cognitive no, test? No, I haven't taken a test. Why the hell would I take a test? Come on, man. That's like saying you, before you got in this program, if you take a test where you're taking cocaine or not, what do you think, huh? Are, are you a junkie? What do you say... To or slurs his words. Willing to let the American public judge my physical and mental fit, my physical as well as my mental fitness. I will say both campaigns have gone very hard on Spanish language YouTube. Biden had a whole thing about uh, remembering the El Paso shooting, and Trump, unsurprisingly, has gone very hard on Spanish language ads, comparing Biden to Fidel Castro and Hugo Chavez, including in this clip, which uh, pairs Biden saying progressive as matched with collectivist leaders through South and Central America, calling their reforms by the same word. I'm going to be good to go down as one of the most progressive presidents in American history. Nuestros gobiernos progresistas. Las ideas progresistas, a las ideas del socialismo. Este nuevo eje progresista tendría aliados poderosísimos. Most progressive presidents in American history. Progresista. If at this point you're thinking, oh my God, you're playing so many more clips from the Trump channel than the Biden channel. Well, you're right. And there's a reason for it. In the last four weeks, Donald Trump has uploaded... 579 videos 
And that number's probably gone up by the time that this podcast gets released. He clearly believes, or his comms team believes, that more is more on the internet. Keep pumping out messages so there is always fresh content. In comparison, how many videos did Joe Biden put out? 36. He clearly wants to make every new video an event. And that's a decision. It's a, it, it, it's a strategy. But in my opinion, the internet makes a decision on content immediately. Doesn't matter how long you spend on it. Doesn't matter how good it looks. There are a million different vectors that the internet decides whether or not they are going to watch it, whether or not they're going to enjoy it, whether or not they're going to spread it. And a lot of it is time. Is there an ad in front of it? Things that have nothing to do with the content or exactly how hard you worked on it. If they don't like it, they will move on to another. If they do like it, they might share it and then move on to another. The Trump strategy, to me, probably looks more like the future of campaigns. So regardless of where the tone of the messaging is, the idea of 579 videos a month, to me, is probably closer to what we're going to look at going forward than 36 videos a month with 100 days to go into the election. Now, the second side of this, if we are going to distill the strategy of the campaigns themselves based on the messages they are putting out, I believe that they can be summed up as follows. For Biden, Trump is just really bad and people have died because of it. That's bad. Remember me? I'm Joe Biden. I didn't kill anyone. For Trump, it's Biden is awful and mentally incapable to drive, let alone be president. But even if he was at full mental cognition, he's been in government forever and he has sold out the American worker each and every day that he's been there. And that was bad then before his party swung so far to the left. Now when he caves, it's going to be irreversible. Let me state this again. YouTube ain't real life. And a lot of this here is mechanical dissection of exactly how you get your message out in 2020. But when we go back and we autopsy these campaigns, and now we are benefited by the fact that we can see who won and how they did it. And the story is either that Donald Trump flailed through the pandemic and lost his presidency for it, or Joe Biden choked a lead that was slightly larger than Hillary Clinton's. These things are going to matter, at least to nerds like me. gang huddle on up huddle up uh, uh we got some family business to take care of number one first and foremost thank you to everybody who has continued their support of this program on takepoliticsseriously.com it will never be forgotten considering the uncertain economic times that we are in right now that that so many of you over a thousand of you have taken it upon yourself to keep independent political reporting and analysis alive uh, again, 
just amazing, immaculate. You guys are the best. A buck gets you the custom RSS feed that gets you these podcasts faster than you get them on Spotify or Apple or the podcatcher of your choosing because it comes directly through Patreon and I publish them to Patreon first. I don't deliberately delay it, but they always come in sometimes hours ahead of the other platforms. If you want that, it's a buck. It's so easy. Also, we have the $3 Club. That gets you uh, the bonus podcast on Monday, the bonus podcast on Thursday. And as we get into convention season, those are going to be pretty valuable. We got a bunch of other perks there, but you can go ahead and check that out at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. For right now, this is a message to everybody. Everybody, okay? PX3 Poll. This is our yearly examination of what we're doing good, what we're doing bad, what you want more of, what you want less of. The, the poll we did last year changed this show forever. It was life-changing to me, literally. Compared to where the podcast is now to a year ago, the quality leaps we've had, being in touch with the community is huge to that, but I gotta get your opinion. So head on over there right now, bit.ly slash P-X number three poll, P-O-L-L. Again, bit.ly slash P-X three poll, P-O-L-L. It's already been out to the patrons for a little bit, so I know what the patrons, uh, uh, what, what, what they think. But now I want to know what everybody else thinks as well. I want to know what folks who aren't patrons is there maybe a little bit extra that you guys are, are looking for that we could coax you on over the line for? Is there a, a, a particular thing that you want a little bit less of that maybe grates your nerves a little bit? The only way that I know is if you tell me bit.ly slash px3 poll. I thank everybody for taking the time. From the pocket, launches to the end zone, caught, touchdown, Chase! And LSU takes its first lead tonight. Those are sounds from the college football championship earlier this year, and it may be the last sounds we hear at that level with the same roster of teams that we are normally expecting to see this fall. That is because, obviously, COVID-19 has disrupted everything, but college football and college athletics itself have been at a teetering point for not years, but decades. And now that the money faucet has turned off by way of an act of God, there are some changes in the offing. Players from the Pac-12 conference have threatened to boycott the 2020 football season unless changes both related to COVID and systemic to the system are made. And today, as I record this, players from the Big Ten have joined them. The Big Ten includes some pretty major schools like Ohio State and Michigan. And there is one woman who saw a lot of this coming. 
We were lucky enough to sit down and speak with her a few weeks ago. Her name is Victoria Jackson. She's a sports historian and clinical assistant professor at Arizona State University and a former NCAA champ and retired professional track and field athlete. She is very well versed in this topic. She's a history professor and a former athlete. You can follow her on Twitter at History Runner. And again, her bona fides are pretty clear on calling for this kind of stuff to happen. She wrote an op-ed in the Boston Globe called Cancel the Fall College Football Season. And it looks like some of the labor in that equation agrees with her. But let's welcome her in right now. Welcome to the show, Victoria. Thanks for having me. Hi. Obviously, we are in a very unsure unsteady world where we don't exactly know where we are in this virus, let alone when the world we knew before could come back. But as we have stretched out into the summer, uh, it, the, the one of the big attention points now comes to education and specifically college. But one of the things that you are uh, an expert in is how much colleges rely on collegiate athletics and specifically the big money program. So why don't we start there? Exactly how dependent on some of these big money uh, sports programs are the colleges in general? Well, within the Power Five conferences, so the, the big time schools, the top 65 universities that make up the ACC, Big Ten, Big 12, SEC, uh-oh, <laughs> and, and uh, well, you know, the five. Yeah, um, power five, yeah. Um, they are dependent on the money that they are guaranteed or thought they were guaranteed to bring in. So if we're thinking about the money in athletics, that money for a large part stays in athletics. And they're set, that group alone is set, if there is no football this fall, to um, lose it on $4 billion, up to $4 billion that they had been relying upon. So within athletics, within intercollegiate athletics, if there is no fall season, this could be devastating to the ways those schools run um, their programs and also all of the people employed within intercollegiate athletics. As far as what intercollegiate athletics means to the broader university, there is kind of more variation across the national landscape with some college towns, of course, more dependent on college sports than others. So if we're looking at a school like Ohio State University, you know, the local economy of Columbus is very much dependent on having a football season with fans in the stands. And so that school is more dependent on ticket sales and also all the businesses that, that make that community thrive. So this is bigger than just the money in athletics. It, it really um, signals the health of the community and also the confidence in students and parents, um, you know, sending their students back to campus um, if, you know, classes will be in person in the fall. For, for folks that are not uh, plugged into this world, can you just describe uh, exactly how much money we are talking about in terms of a school's athletic program and how top heavy it is with uh, football primarily and then basketball secondarily as the big money earners. Sure. If we're looking again at these power five schools, 
the vast majority of these top 65 um, sports schools make between $100 million and about $220 million a year in revenue. But they're incentivized to spend it because if it looks like you're making a profit, it's going to be hard to defend this enterprise as amateur athletics. So that's why we see um, coaches at public universities who are technically state employees making upwards of five, six, sometimes even close to $10 million a year. It's why we see the facilities arms race. It's why we see um, athletics administration bloating because the compensation that the athletes receive in this enterprise is, is capped at scholarships. That's, that's what the whole model is, is dependent on. It, it, it relies on that part. Um, and so this, this, this has always been the case that it's been a commercial en enterprise for some and educational for others, but there's been an acceleration in the money, um, especially in the last two decades. So this system, this enterprise grew from $4 billion a year to $14 billion a year. Um, and, and that just really exposed a lot of these tensions. And, and, and these have been underlying for a very, very, very long time for, for folks who have not followed this debate of whether or not college athletes should be paid and exactly how amateur this amateur athletics uh, program really, really is. These are long-standing grievances. That's right. The, the first big study that got a lot of national attention was published in 1929, actually. And all of the kind of problems critics of college sports point to, um, exorbitant spending, um, and over-prioritization um, of athletics over academics, um, coaches making too much money, on and on and on. Um, those are all outlined in the Carnegie Report of 1929. So, again, the, these tensions are built in, um, but the, 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 I mean, it's just so much more dramatic now, you know, and, and continuing to grow. So, um, you know, I think um, that the kind of tragedy that I'm seeing in all of this is that we did have um, again, over these last 20 years, a growing athletes' rights movement and athletes um, advocating to um, have more protections. And, and, you know, it's not just getting paid. It's making sure that educations are actually valuable, yeah. rigorous educational experiences, medical and health coverage, the opportunity to do study abroad, like the, the, the what athletes were getting out of this relationship could have been better. And so because of athletes advocating for those things, we've seen this growing movement kind of culminating in um, California passing the Fair Pay to Play Act last fall. Um, so that would be allowing athletes to make money off of their name, image, and likeness beginning in 2023. And so right now we have about 25 states with similar legislation making its way through so that athletes Really, it's just restoring to students who play sports the economic rights enjoyed by all other students on campuses. So again, with this pandemic and the yeah. rush to bring sports back, um, I fear that that growing athletes' rights movement has been kind of overwhelmed and absorbed by um, the, the bigger and legitimately more serious issue of making sure athletes are safe when they return to campuses and begin practice. So with that in mind, uh, if you could explain for, for listeners how much 
uh, like for example, you are an NCAA champion as a track and field athlete. Track and field, at least historically, in how I've understood athletics, is not a tremendous money uh, earner, but does require uh, uh, certainly coaches and staff and uh, equipment and facilities and upkeep to to go. And a lot of programs, especially ones that have functioning football programs or, 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 you know, stuff like that. Uh, they, they fund those. Uh, would that be a correct assessment? Yeah. I call myself a beneficiary of collegiate amateurism. So amateurism is, you know, everybody making a lot of money in the system and schools making a lot of money to spend a lot of that money and then capping, you know, capping the athlete compensation sure. part for those revenue generating athletes and scholarships. And then part of this, too, is, you know, the, the athletes in the non-revenue sports, like myself, you know, as a track and field athlete, we benefit from all of that spending. Yeah. We get to travel cross-country. We get to have access to the best training facilities in the world. It's why the world's best Olympic development athletes come and compete within the NCAA, because their National Federation facilities don't compare because of all of this money being produced and then spent within American college sports. So we're benefiting from this. And, you know, I was a distance runner, so I never spent more than 20 hours a week on sport. So I could take advantage of that world-class education that we were all promised. But the thing is, I attended the University of North Carolina, which is notorious for being, you know, the school that committed the most egregious case of academic fraud (laughs) in NCAA history. And I attended UNC during a high-water mark in that scandal. And so athletes, um, you know, who a disproportionate number of whom were black, who played football and basketball, were channeled into fake classes. Meanwhile, I fell in love with history and went on to earn my PhD in history. So it's all predicated, you know, athletes like me are used to kind of prop up and defend this system. Yeah. But by no means are all athletes getting the same experiences when they're playing college sports. Absolutely not. Uh, and 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 just one more uh, a question in terms of the money before we get into the COVID of it all. There has been an explosion in the last ten years as traditional television has become more and more time shiftable. That the one thing that seems to continue to explode because you have to be there in the moment to see it is all manner of live sports and the rights for those sports have continued to bring in top dollar for even a massive program. And you mentioned Ohio state before, so let's just use them as an example, roughly how much money do they make from television rights deals versus let's say live gate and, and attendance. Yes. The power five makes, so much more money from TV now, more than they ever have. And the college football playoff really accelerated this too. So if we're looking at the wealthiest two conferences, and the Ohio State University plays within one of them with the biggest TV contracts, um, the Big Ten brings in $440 million a year um, and then distributes that, for the most part, equally across the members. Um, some of the newer members of the Big Ten get a little bit less. And then the SEC come in, comes in right under that at $432 million a and year. That's, and that's just, um, that that's in television rights or is that's all told? That's just TV. That's yeah, just that's TV. TV. All right. Network. So that's, yeah. That, yep. And the SEC network. Yeah. So that's a whole lot of money 
Yes. And, um, and that's why football, I think it's crucial to point out that's why there is such a rush to make sure we have a football season because the schools depend on the football money. They aren't as dependent on the basketball money. The basketball money in March Madness goes to the NCAA, and then the NCAA distributes that across all 1,100 schools, uses that for their operations, and to host championships. But the schools make money on football, and they, they drive the bus. They, that's their thing. And so without the money that they've been depending upon coming in from football, that the whole system ceases to exist on university campuses. They're so dependent upon that money. So now that we've set the stage, there's obviously been a a long-term issue. Uh, uh, there is a, an explosion of the money, and yet, as you pointed out, this is not something that colleges are apt to uh, or have put away for a rainy day because they need to maintain the idea of amateurism, so they spend it as fast as they can. And for those of you who are not aware when Victoria is talking about world class, you know the, the the training center arms race. Just do yourself and go on YouTube, and I think it's the University of Oregon's new and, and LSU. I think also just recently debuted new training centers, and it is a spaceship. It, it is it is the, among the craziest things that you have ever seen in your entire life. To the point where these athletes are likely going to take a tremendous step down when they go to the professional ranks uh, in terms of training facility. So that's that's what you guys are looking at. Now Victoria, we are here in this COVID situation where not only is the science still evolving, but sports just now are starting to peek their head up over uh, uh the the horizon line in terms of starting to try and do something specifically with the NBA and NHL in bubbles. Baseball is going to uh, try to play a very abbreviated season. What is the plan for college athletics as we speak here in late July? This is still a moving story. Um, so as of today, we've had two of the five Power Five conferences, um, the Big Ten and the Pac-12, moved to conference only for the fall season. But it's pretty clear that there are backup contingency plans that um, ultimately, you know, the last, you know, straw, it would be canceling entirely and just waiting until the following fall. Um, but the last step before that is moving to spring. Um, the very first uh, school to cancel its fall season was Morehouse, um, followed by the IV group of schools and national junior colleges um, have also canceled the season but you know it's this group of five power five so the football um uh bowl subdivision the the top 10 conferences this is the nfl pipeline every single um draft in cnfl for the last couple of years has come from one of these two groups of conferences 75 percent of them coming from the power five um, so this is, you know, it's higher education being the pipeline to the pros. I think we need to keep that in mind. So <laughs> we have players back on campus for voluntary practice. There have been um, clusters and hotspots across the country with some schools having as many as um, 40 athletes. Um, Clemson 
has the record with 43 student athletes, 37 of them football players testing positive. Um, and, and schools, again, across the country having high rates and then shutting down practice. So we are seeing universities um, and some of these coaches have been saying the quiet part out loud, I'm afraid, <laughs> using football players as a test run um, to see if these protocols will be successful when students come back in the fall. So we see them kind of testing out what to do when students who play sports test positive, they go into quarantine, either they're removed from where they're living into a different quarantine apartment. This is what played out at Clemson. They were there for 10 days of isolation with people bringing them meals and checking in with them twice a day to monitor their symptoms. If they're no longer showing symptoms after those 10 days, they're re-examined by medical staff and cleared to return to workouts. So we, you know, they're not saying it on the record, but Pete Samuel had a story in Yahoo Sports where he had a couple different Power Five coaches and administrators quoted as saying, you know, this is this is showing that we we can handle this when students come back in the fall. We know what to do when when our students who play sports test positive. And again, if we step outside of the current moment and think about this in the context of so-called amateur college sports, we're <laughs> certainly asking a lot of these football players to, to serve their universities in this way. And the trade-off for them is this scholarship, yeah, right? But while everybody else <laughs> and the economy, they're so dependent upon, I mean, it, it, if, if there was anything you could point to and say, you know, these athletes deserve more for what they're sacrificing for us. It's this role that they're serving um, in, in the pandemic. Because, yeah, the, 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 even if we were to assume that every, you know, football player or basketball player that have very demanding training schedules, uh, if they all took as good of a, a, or took as advantage of their, free education or, or, you know, scholarship education, uh, as you did, even then you are now being put in a situation where that's not necessarily going to be the same thing as, as colleges figure out how they're going to educate their students and they are risking their lives. Literally. I mean, obviously in, in football, that there's an element of, of, of how much you take that in your own hands in general, but in the, in this case, not whether or not, they are more likely to have lethal repercussions from COVID-19. We have no idea uh, what the long-term repercussions of this are, right? That's exactly right. And I think this, more than anything, is showing how dependent the health of our education is on the health of football. Um, and, you know, when we're talking about health and we <laughs> are operating in a pandemic and we don't necessarily know the long-term effects of of having this illness, like are the schools that these athletes are, are potentially sacrificing their bodies for, and we haven't even talked about like CTE and, and the other risks with playing football, are the schools going to step up and pay for their care if there are long-term effects? Because a lot of these athletes are signing waivers. So are the school, you know, and if the schools are financially vulnerable if they don't end up getting all the TV money that they've been hoping for, like, how are they going to pay, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years into the future, some of the athletes who do contract COVID-19 from these summer practices 
end up having long-term health effects. And, you know, I'm a runner. I, I need to run every day to yeah. in the world. If my heart and my lungs are affected, if I can check COVID-19 and I learned it was because, you know, I was told I'm helping my university community by being back on campus and going forward with the season. I think I'd be pretty bitter about that. Um, <laughs> I can only that's, imagine. That's, yeah. And that's the other part that, that, that makes this kind of tragic for me. I know the culture of intercollegiate athletics and I know how athletes feel really good when they feel like they're contributing to a greater cause. And my fear is that that's being manipulated in this case. Um, part of intercollegiate athletics is, you know, I bled Carolina blue, right? And yeah. I would do anything for that university. And that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But when the power dynamics are so out of control, when, when athletes actually don't have a voice at the table and they trust, you know, the adults who are putting them in these really precarious situations, um, it just, it makes me concerned about our, our young people who are playing sports right now. Well, not to mention, it just shows you what the bargaining position for these athletes really for these athletes really are, specifically on the football teams, and probably to a lesser extent the basketball teams, where they 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 are are the key to all of this. <laughs> you know, if 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 they stood up and said we're not going to play, then this would be a a far greater situation. And now, as television contracts and deal as as we've seen in the NBA, part of the reason why those players are going back is because if they don't, then they might have to renegotiate, the league might have to renegotiate their television deal. That there are there are out clauses if you do not deliver the product for which you are contracted to. And I would assume that there's probably similar, if not identical, complications with collegiate athletics. Uh, what you called for in the Boston Globe was to cancel the fall season uh, in part for health, but also in part to kind of figure out some of these issues that now have been brought to a boil. Why do you think that's the right decision? Well, football for a long time has, has rep represented a ticking time bomb. And I, I focus in on football because there are alternative pathways getting to develop in basketball. Um, but the problem with football is it is the sole pathway to the NFL. So higher education is serving as a minor league for the NFL. And that's, that's a problem. Um, and, and, you know, football is a ticking time bomb. Schools need to consider if they want to continue to host a student activity that can cause brain injury and contribute to chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Um, that's the degenerative and incurable disease linked to repeated hits to the head. They need to listen to players' grievances and criticisms of an amateur model, much like we've been discussing. And, you know, they need to... <laughs> Think about if they do want to continue to be this sole pathway in minor league for the NFL, that this is happening within higher education. That should give us pause. Um, and then, you know, because of this athlete's rights movement and because of antitrust litigation, you know, the, the schools in the NCAA have been putting tons of resources into fighting that. They need to stop fighting that and take it seriously. And then finally, um, much like we've been discussing, they need to fix these racially disparate educational outcomes. And I think the solution here, I mean, I see higher ed going one of two ways. The way that probably makes the most sense is to spin off football and return to a scholastic model of sport and everything else. 
um, I think the schools would still be able to benefit from all the marketing they enjoy and the community benefits they enjoy by having a professional team affiliated with the university but run independent of it. Um, and then, like we've been saying, these athletes will finally be able to enjoy compensation above their scholarships and have unionized labor rights, um, much like we've been seeing in these negotiations with the pro sports teams. So the, the other way would be to actually treat it like uh, it's, it's performance art um, and to, to build, much like we see with music and the arts, into higher education sport as a legitimate professional pathway and with multiple variations off the theme of simply playing a pro sport. So, so to have a curriculum designed around it and you are getting your degree in football or basketball. That's right. I think it's unfortunate that too many of these athletes whom I consider to be brilliant are put in situations that often make them feel bad about themselves. We don't make, you know, a brilliant musician major in something other than the instrument that they play. And I think it's a tragedy that we don't take seriously the excellence that it is performing, you know, at, at an elite university and doing something extraordinary with one's body. But in addition to that, if it's a liberal arts degree, you know, you, you have sport and society training. You think about all the different professional options that are involved in sport. Um, and I think taking sport seriously opens up doors to get creative and imaginative about what a degree could be. <clears throat> and then, you know, the other part of this, too, we don't just make students who play sport feel guilty um, educationally, we also make them feel guilty for taking money under the table. So bring that money above board too. Um, if, if, you know, we were to go back a year and look at the FBI probe into the underground labor relations, yeah. there's just, there's so much signaling going on that you should feel bad about yourself for being excellent at sport. Schools should be thinking about how to make people feel great about it. And also give them the tools to be excellent when they do turn pro. Um, I, I turned pro in track and field and had no idea what I was doing, <laughs> in part because part of being an amateur collegiate athlete is not setting yourself up for a professional career. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and for those uh, who are, are unfamiliar with the story that Victoria just referenced, that was a FBI probe into uh, shoe companies largely trying to get the inside track with uh, various different athletes and, and how uh, uh, the, the underground money network there is just insane. And that's before we even get into boosters and stuff like that, which is its own bonanza of, of cash that uh, does get to the athletes, but illicitly and uh, at the, at the cost often of uh, some of their, uh, you know, compensation of scholarships limited though it might be. Uh, well, mm -hmm. well, let me let me ask you this, uh, uh, Victoria, because I, I very much am appreciative that you were patient enough to kind of go through some of the remedial elements just so we could set this up for the audience. But, you know, very well from being inside that system that 
the NCAA and the collegiate system in general is loath to change on anything and, and little concessions that probably could have been made years ago that would have slowly alleviated some of these problems have been fought tooth and nail. So of the solutions that you just gave, which do you think is the most realistic if in, in terms of happening? Yeah. I mean, I teach history of college sports at ASU and it's this exactly what you just described this hundred year history of as long as we can continue to do this, as long as we convince everyone, the positives outweigh the negatives, it will continue on. Um, and so that the Boston globe op-ed I wrote was an attempt at an intervention to shake us out of that thinking and, you know, offering this solution, pointing out all the issues and then offering the solution of spinning off football. I, um, I mean, looking at that history, the realist would say this will not happen. But the optimist in me knows that all it takes is one president, one university president at one of these power five schools to make a compelling, convincing case to the other presidents and to, to give it a try. If, if there ends up not being football and all this money they've been hoping for doesn't end up appearing, rather than being in triage, my hope is that there's someone who can step out of that and think, okay, now's the time. We can get imaginative and creative and figure out a new way forward. And if it ends up being spinning off, that's great. If it ends up being something else, that's great too. But what we're doing right now shouldn't be considered sustainable any longer. And I, I will say just as an outside observer and fan of college, uh, you know, football, basketball, and athletics in general, there has been thawing on a level that I can't remember prior to it between the law in California, the loss of, uh, you know, EA not wanting to do NCAA football or, or basketball video games anymore because they're afraid of, the lawsuits that that could result of it, uh, uh, or even the NCAA finally, uh, you know, in, in response to the California law, saying that there would be some kind of program for students to benefit at least off their own merchandise. Uh, uh, there, there seems to be some cracks, uh, uh, but I'm I'm with you. I I hope that a moment like this is something where you know maybe you can you can do some fundamental change if we're already in. A, a, a crisis year anyway. That's the hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Victoria, for joining us. Of course, uh, 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 you are a Victoria Jackson, a sports historian and clinical assistant professor at Arizona state university, former NCAA champion and retired professional track and field athlete. Please go ahead and follow her on Twitter at history runner. Uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed this very much. Thanks. And that will wrap it up for us today. Thank you to my guest, Victoria Jackson. One more time talking about college athletics and uh, some of the changes that are going on there. I know that was a little off the beaten path. You know, uh, we, we went really political nerd. Uh, process uh, campaign strategy up front. Uh, but I really enjoy that 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 topic. And uh, I hope hopefully uh, even the non 
sports fans can appreciate the kind of seismic change that is happening. Uh, a reminder, if you like the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast, you're going to love the Politics, Politics, Politics live stream. Twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young is where you can get that. That is uh, live on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time to 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Brand new set. We are revamping a lot, getting everything ready for the conventions. That's going to be where you're going to watch the convention coverage when that, whatever the hell those YouTube videos are going to be, uh, uh, you know, gets uh, the space bar hit on national television. But you can watch the companion stuff with me. So get used to that. Twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. Uh, you're also going to love the politics, politics, politics free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. But I love our Titanic $10 tier. These are the folks that keep me in business. Modesto's own Logan Cisco, NH Blumkin, Chad, Headphones, Neil, Water Eyes, Scoop, MacBook Pro, Dallas Danger Taylor, Middle Age Mike, DTNS, Hack 5, Brad, Utah Jimmy Montana, Frozen Summer, Zach and Cheese, Captain Bunzo, Zombie Doc, Berkeley Steven, your boy Craig, TroubleFilm.com, Robert, Mr. Tallyman, D Laser, I Pooped My Pants, Severio, Martin, Alec, Government Unfiltered, Jerry, Andres, Archie, J. Milius, The Gen, The Crap in My Pants, Olin and Angela, DL, Brian, IPoopMyPants.com, Miranda, Janelle, Robert, Glenn Wolf, Brand Chili Scoop, Richard, J. Pink, and Andrew. You want to join their ranks? You head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more. Man, they're out here talking about politics, but this, this is the only show that talks about how Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>